Hi, and welcome to episode 23 of the Inside Social Work podcast. These have definitely been some really challenging times, not for just our clients, but also for us as workers. There's been a lot of conversation around necessary and frontline staff and essential workers and a lot of talk around supporting people's mental health. I know in the coming weeks and months there'll probably be an increase in conversation around supporting people's mental health, returning to schools, returning to work and all the changes that will come with adapting to a new type of normal. I hope you're all taking a bit of time amongst all these times of change and adaptation and psychological flexibility to rest and there's one thing uh, one piece of advice that I give to the people I work with is that it's okay not to feel okay right now to lean into your support system to take the time out that you need to rest uh, recuperate and really just take care of yourself these are really difficult times for a lot of people Uh, there's a lot of anxiety in the air and that's totally okay it's totally okay to feel not okay right now So thanks for listening. I know that uh, people have probably changed their listening habits a bit. Some people listen as they're commuting, which may not be the case anymore. Uh, Some people listen to this episode or other episodes as they're walking the dog or kind of getting out their um, their daily allowance of exercise. So big shout out to everybody. Big shout out to the social work, inside social work community. Thank you very much. Today's episode, I chat with Kylie Lloyd. Uh, Kylie Lloyd uh, started her social work career a little bit later on in life after coming across from HR. She shares with us some of her experiences being a mature age student and balancing uh, being a mother and financial responsibilities that come with, with that and balancing placement. And she talks us through some of the things that she's doing now, working in schools. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Kylie Lloyd. Uh, for notes on today's episode, you can go to the Inside Social Work podcast slash episode 23. And if you'd like to make a contribution to keep the show going, there's also a link um, on the website to a PayPal account where you can make a contribution to help keep the show going. Here to share her experiences working in a school in her debut podcast episode is Kylie Lloyd. Welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast. I'm here with Kylie Lloyd and a big, uh, I guess a big heads up that we are both studying together. <laughs> We're family therapists in training. Um, so yeah, just kind of putting that out there to the world. Kylie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Marie. Thanks for having me. Um, would you like to share with the audience a little bit about um, your journey into social work and family therapy um, and you know where you're at now? Yeah, sure. Well, I actually started, um, I worked for most of my life before I moved into social work and um, working at non-for-profits in um, sort of senior HR and training roles. Um, and uh, I then a significant, a significant incident occurred um, within my life. It was quite traumatic and it made me just sort of reevaluate um, where I was at and what I wanted to get out of life. And so I decided to volunteer for Lifeline. So I joined up for Lifeline and, and did that for about eight years as a volunteer. And in between that time started to sort of just readdress my, what I could give to the community and how I could uh, become a more, I guess, 
a more, um, God, Marie, I'm stuck now. Um, yeah, I don't know. Contribute more to, to people that are less fortunate than I am. I consider myself very fortunate and privileged, you know, in a lot of ways. Uh, so, yeah, I, I wanted to be able to offer something to those that weren't. So I then started a, a grad dip in um, counselling and human services at La Trobe. And then from there went on and did my master's in social work at RMIT. And now, as you said, I'm studying uh, also with uh, you at uh, La Trobe via the Bouvery Centre for the Masters in Family Therapy. And I've sort of had a journey of working in out-of-home care roles, um, so kinship care, case management and those sorts of things. And then I moved into schools uh, and I'm now running... Um, a school in uh, a counselling service in a school in the eastern suburbs in Melbourne, a Catholic co-ed college. And I've got um, there's seven of us in the team all together, so it's a, a quite a large team. And uh, that's where I work now. Do you have any advice for some of the students out there who are maybe studying or newly graduated, um, who are mature age students who maybe like yourself worked extensively in another field? Um, what are some of the, I guess, words of wisdom or some of the challenges that maybe you overcame being mm. in that kind of learner, being a learner again as an adult? Mm. I think the first thing I would uh, recommend is that you are really passionate about wanting to do this because it is a hard journey when you are an adult, particularly I was a single mother um, with two children, two young children when I started studying and so I still needed to work uh, and study and support my children and, and be there for them. So you really need to be committed um, and really passionate and want to do it because particularly going back and, and doing the Masters in social work, the placement hours are significant. Um, amazing and I think uh, they are vital and definitely uh, I think it's great and I loved it and I loved both of my placements they were both totally different but I learned so much from them but it's hard and you do need support around you and you need to be prepared to you know go without and sacrifice and work hard um, so I suppose that's probably the first thing I'd say but the second thing I'd say is that if you are really committed and passionate passionate about doing it, it's an amazing experience and the learning is, um, is just extraordinarily large. And, uh, and the opportunity to be able to help people and give back and work with people that are less fortunate than you, then that gift is just um, makes up for all of that hard work really being able to, you know, be, be someone to contribute in that way. Mm. What have you learned about yourself in the process? <laughs> I'm stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stubborn and I don't like the word no. Um, I think I'm referred to as a dog with a bone most of the time and I'm sure I drive everyone mad at work because if I want to do something, want to get something done, um, no is not an option so I just keep annoying people and going back and back and finding new ways to you know dig the tunnel through 
um, so that I can I can achieve what I need to achieve. So I'm very, I'm very, um, you know, determined to help others and for things to be fair and equal and to give people in marginalised communities and that aren't as fortunate as, as myself and many of my peers that same opportunity, really. So I think that's probably what I've learned most is that I'm, I don't give up. Mm. That's, that's a good skill to have, I guess. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so tell us uh, more about working in a school setting. So what are some of the challenges being, I mean, your team's um, larger than some others, but still outnumbered mm. by other professionals, mostly teachers. Mm. Um, how does that, how do you find the dynamics of that work in a, in a school setting? Um. I think it's a, certainly a challenge. As you said, it, it's definitely a challenge because the core business is education. And yes, there's seven of us in the team and I think there's 200 teachers. So um, we're, we're far outweighed in that way. And I think that can be really hard because we are always looking at it with our lens of um mental health and equality and justice and, you know, privilege and um, well-being and, uh, and, and compassion and, and all of those sort of things. And teachers are often coming at it from a very different perspective because they've got targets to meet and they've got education standards and curriculum to adhere to. And they've also got potentially up to 25 kids in a classroom. You know, I'm dealing with one person at one time or maybe a family or a group of kids, but it's just a totally different uh, environment. So it can be challenging, but I also find it's a, it's, it's a good opportunity to help both mental health workers in education understand more about the difficulties that they face in a teaching capacity of trying to navigate that trying to navigate a classroom when you've got, you know, such a spectrum of, of different kids and issues and experiences and backgrounds and families and everything, you know, in that room. And they've got to try and set a certain curriculum and everyone's got to follow it to some degree. And, you know, and then it allows us the opportunity to also, I guess, work out, work out how we can support them to understand what we're doing is actually working with them but you know sometimes I know that doesn't feel that way so I think they the the opportunity and the challenge is 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 one of the two one in the same in, in some ways because it's a great opportunity for teachers to understand more about mental health and to learn about trauma and how that impacts children in a classroom setting you know and medication and mental health and family violence and all of those things, homelessness, uh, how that impacts a young person and the person sitting next to them may well be a student who's got two parents and, you know, stable income and they eat at the table every night and they have food. And so, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's forever developing because every situation is different. Uh, so it's challenging, but it's also, I think, good because 
we can help them to understand more about what we're trying to do to help kids succeed in the classroom and they can help understand more about how they can do that too um, within the confines of what they're dealing with. What are some of the ways that you can bring teachers along on that journey? Because I, I find, um, I think you're right in saying for them, it's it's a different way of working. There's could be 25 students in a class. You've got a, maybe a 75 minute period or any very kind of strict key the tasks you need to achieve. How do you work with um, with them to help them understand a little bit more about some of the individual students while also respecting the time constraints, the workload, the mark in the curriculum development, all those things that they're holding and also mm. trying to um, provide a more customised, I guess, service to the individuals that you know quite well? Mm. I think I, I, I try a very personal approach with staff, particularly staff that I notice maybe their emotional intelligence isn't at the same level as some other staff might be um, based on their own personal experiences or whatever. So I think it's got to be personal and it's got to be um, non-blaming and non-judging. And I think I try to listen and understand what's going on for them first uh, so that they feel you know, and because I want to understand what's happening for them because it is hard, but they also feel that they're being listened to and not just told what to do. Uh, so I try and develop a relationship and, and an understanding about where they're coming from. And then I try to help them to understand, I guess, look at what they've tried in the past and how that has worked for them. And usually it hasn't. Um, so it's then about, well, maybe I can offer you a different way to do that which may cause you less stress in the classroom and ultimately get a better outcome for that student too. So I think it's got to be individual based on what's going on for the student. But I do believe that it's much better if you can go and speak to that teacher as opposed to doing it over email or via a level leader or anything like that. Because people work in this industry because teachers... Most teachers work in this industry because they love working with young people, but they're under pressure. They've got significant, you know, um, confines as to how they operate and it's getting more and more challenging for them and legislative and, and the expectation of teachers is just increasing all the time. Um, so I think it's, you've really got to understand all of that and then try to get the best outcome for that young person within that mix. I like that you um, talked about that face-to-face -face contact. Um, some of the challenges I think my students who are placed in schools tend to find is there's an assumed knowledge and sometimes we get so used to just either our peers or our colleagues all speak the same sort of socioeconomic language as us that sometimes we assume when we say something like trauma that another professional knows exactly what that means. So there's so much importance in bringing people along for the journey, but selling them the outcome. So if you implement A, B and C, this is what this person will be able to gain. Mm. Mm. Do you have any sort of advice on that? Like, you know, by doing this, they'll pay, pay more attention in school or by doing this, we'll see an increase in attendance, like bringing it back to what the benefit's going to be. Yeah, definitely. I think you have to look at it that way. And I think you also have to look at it based on evidence. 
um, and what's been done in the past to show teachers that it can work, but it's also an individual thing. And sometimes, you know, I'm not the I'm not an expert either in that sense. I don't have a magic wand, so we might try something, and it might not work. But but I guess the idea is that then let's look at something else. And this is not about blaming you or blaming me. It's about going, okay, well, maybe that didn't work for this young person, but let's try this. Because I suppose at the end of the day, I often say to teachers, well, you know, what's the worst case scenario, you know, if we try this? Because what you're doing at the minute isn't working. Um, you know, you've told me that. Um, so how can we look at something different um, to try and, have a better outcome for everyone because it impacts, you know, all the other kids in the class as well. And sometimes that might be bringing in another specialist service from the school. So we might then look at bringing in, you know, the education support officer or uh, looking at doing some testing because this kid might actually have some cognitive deficits as well, you know, or some neurodiverse, um, you know, challenges that haven't been diagnosed. Or So I think that's that opportunity then to also you know, validate that the teacher isn't doing the wrong thing, but we mightn't have all the information yet. Mm. Mm. So this schools are such an interesting microcosm <laughs> of, um, of stuff there. So we've talked a little bit about bringing teachers on board. What about parents? Mm. Do you want to share some of your experiences working with parents and maybe a little bit about how that's changed through the additional studies that you're currently doing, maybe the, the extra lens that you're now looking at. Yeah, I can. I know the extra lens straight away is compassion for parents more. Um, I'm a pretty strong young person advocate, and and that probably goes back to my family of origin stuff and childhood issues. Um, and so I've always been a you know fighter for the kid. And, um, and I've always thought that the parents, you know, just need to step up. Um, so working in this environment and particularly in a management role within a school counselling service, the exposure to parents and, and families in a much more in-depth way has been a big part of my job. Um, and there's so many more layers to it than I... Um, you know, I guess I first sort of came with and, and hence one of the reasons why I wanted so much to do the Masters in Family Therapy, to be able to develop that, that systemic, uh, you know, understanding even more so that I can work with families in a way that is going to benefit the young person or young people within the family, but also the whole family. Um, so I'm definitely much more compassionate to parents and their challenges and also um, I guess instead of saying you know they don't care or they they're just thinking about themselves I very much look at it like now okay well maybe they just don't know that way you know maybe they've only ever learnt that way so I I really start to unpack more about their family of origin and what's happened for them in their lives and and often you know you find that parents have lost their parents at a young age, they never had a dad or their parents broke up and they went and lived with their grandparents. Or So their role modelling of being a parent is often, um, you know, not, not ideal too. So it's all of those things, I think, Marie, that make a difference now. And 
that approach then allows me to get such a better outcome with families because they feel heard too. The parents don't feel blamed because most parents always feel blamed and feel like it's their fault. And that's just part of being a parent. You, you carry this guilt, you know, of I haven't done a good enough job. So the best thing I can do is try to work with them to help them realise that I'm not judging or blaming them and I'm wanting to work with them to help them, you know, to, to, to do an even better job than what they're already doing because they're doing the best they can. How do, mm. you, how do you sell it to the young person? So often um, counselling or something like that is seen as kind of very one-on-one. Mm. Um, how do you pitch it to the young person that might be feeling a bit of hostility with their family or they're in a bit of conflict to invite them in to say we're, we're all in this together rather than the young person blaming their parents or if they just did this, this and this, it would be fine. And the parents may be blaming the young person saying if they just did this, then we'd be fine and we wouldn't argue. How do you invite yeah. them? How do you, and have you messed it up? Like, you know, <laughs> when's it gone pear shaped and when have you had some successes? Oh yeah, it's definitely gone pear shaped. Um, that's for sure. Um, but I think I'll start with my successes. Um, I actually find it pretty easy to, uh, get kids on board and to get parents on board. Um, And maybe that's that dog with the bones sort of attitude. Um, But I try to lay the foundations quite early on with young people about how important it is to have the family on board with this because I don't think I've ever seen a young person where there would not be some benefit from involving the family. Um, now that doesn't always happen obviously because we don't have the capacity to do that but there's always that opportunity so I think it's really just about being open and honest with the young person and helping them see the impact that having a better relationship with their parents will have for them Um, and same with the parents you know it's about okay so and, and it's often quite simple because it's like well is this working for you at the minute no okay so How about we try something different? I don't know if it's going to work either, but you never know. What have you got to lose? So we always look at the worst case scenario and the worst case scenario in most situations, unless there's risk involved and, you know, that then adds another layer and complexities, um, which you then have to address. But, you know, the majority of the time, it's a pretty, it's a bit of a no brainer. And most people just go, oh yeah, okay, great. So um, not that easy. And sometimes it can take, you know, a number of attempts, but um, an old um, a supervisor that I used to have used to say to me, Kylie, sometimes it can take a hundred cups of tea, you know, and different people might give out that person a cup of tea and then you might give them a couple and then, you know, and so I guess I always sort of think about it that way, that it's just another cup of tea every time I speak to them <laughs> and hopefully at some point, you know, we'll get to drink one together. Uh, and it normally does happen. And I think um, if I can't facilitate that, then I will try to facilitate that if they've got external support. Um, but also, I guess it's sometimes about parking it and going, okay, so that now's not the right time for that family or that kid or those parents. But it doesn't mean that it never will be. And it might just be about biding your time and knowing, you know, they've got and that's, I guess, I guess, another part of what I've learned over the time is that it doesn't all have to be done in my time. 
um, well, it shouldn't be because it's not about me, but you know, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like sometimes you want it so much for the families that you just want to do it. Um, but they don't have that capacity right now. So it's about you stepping back and going, that's okay. And that, that old sort of adage, you're doing the best, they're doing the best they can, you know, so just be grateful for that bit now and then try later. Um, and so some of the failures though have definitely been around um, pushing too hard um, and and seeing glaring, you know, glaringly obvious to me <laughs> reasons and things that should change, but, you know, complex family backgrounds that I wasn't prepared for. Um, and, and that can be really hard to navigate in a family situation where you've got, you know, five or six family members who who are all fighting for air and for space in the family and for emotions and um, for acceptance and love. So um, they're, they're the ones I'm still working on, I think, because they, I find them the most challenging for me. Um, but I think that's another really good tip just in regard to students, uh, Marie, is that never be afraid to acknowledge your areas for your development. Or uh, as a, a recent supervisor says, your learning edges. <laughs> um, because I'm, you know, I'm 50 and I'm still learning every day. Every day I sit in a therapy session. You know, there's something else that I could do differently. So I think it really is. And don't be afraid to acknowledge those because it's not, a, you know, it's not a failure. It's just, it's a growth opportunity. I like that you pointed that out because I think that's something that's um, quite unique to working uh, to social work um, more so than maybe some of the other roles, particularly in a school where mm. that idea of reflective practice. So you can't, you'd never just tick a box and say I'm culturally competent or I'm <laughs> LGBTQI competent or I'm working with migrants competent. Like that it's just constantly reflecting on your position and how that changes over time, whether you align more with people because you remember what it was like to feel that way as a teenager, or maybe you align more with the parents because you might be a parent or you can mm -hmm. align more with the dad. Cause you're like, Oh, I can see his point of view. That's how my partner or father might feel. So sometimes there's no right or wrong answer or tick box, but just constantly reflecting on what came up for me in that space. Mm. Cause you're your biggest tool. So mm. if you're not checking in on those, it can really kind of um, change the direction of the conversation and then you become almost part of the system where you're not being curious anymore. You're just sort of directing and that's, you've mm -hmm. kind of then stumbled your way into that kind of maybe dynamic that's not so helpful. Mm. You know, and I think before Marie, at the very beginning, you asked about, you know, advice for, for students. And I think that's probably one of the biggest is, uh, is being able to look at yourself and be honest with yourself about what's going on for you and what you can do differently and don't see it as a criticism but see it as constructive you know because I think otherwise you you, you won't be able to offer the best support uh, to families mm. or anyone any person you know you're working with yeah, that's really, um, that's really good advice. Actually, sorry, I was just listening to a podcast um, 
the other morning and this lady uh, said an amazing quote and it really sat with me and it and she said um, if you can't see me no if you can't hear me you can't see me um, and I think that's really fantastic like it's I think that's an amazing quote you really you've got to sit with it and think about it but it, that's really what it's about, isn't it? If you can't, and there's so many kids in that space. That's what I thought about at that point. Parents, they they don't hear their kids. They don't hear them. They don't give them the time. They don't allow them to speak. They they discipline straight away. They say no straight away. They you know they always think the worst. They they're under for reasons. They're pressured. They're stressed. Whatever. But they don't often hear their kids. And then they can't see them, yeah. you know, because they don't get them, you know. And I just think that's so important. Yeah, it's interesting uh, you mentioned that because it had me thinking of, you know, um, something I see relatively often where parents will be like, but I, I worked really hard to put them into a private school or to give them this and this and this. What more do they want from me? And that young person is like, they just don't feel seen. Mm. they don't feel you know and we're quick to offer and we do it with our friends as well where we're mm. quick to offer advice or a solution be like oh well yeah, you hate your job just quit so you know <laughs> all people kids will come home and say i got in trouble for this and be like well what did you do wrong we straight away either want to solve it or fix it or stick up for it and not mm. give people that space and i can see how over time that can lead to a lot of uh, emotional distancing which then you don't feel deeply connected mm. Yeah. Is that something you see with some of your families? Oh, all the time. The kids rarely feel heard. Rarely feel heard. Um, yeah, it, it, that's a big thing. And and I think parents overcompensate often materialistically for that, you know, um, as you were just saying. But I give them this and I take them to their matches and I buy them new clothes and I... But most kids don't actually want that. You know, they want to be, they want to be heard. They want to be seen. They want to be understood. That mm. goes for all of us. Like, yeah. you know, in friendships or romantic relationships, like a big splurge on a dinner or a big gift, like that stuff doesn't have as much weight as the few minutes every day. Um, and it just makes me think of oh, the Gottmans have this thing of like, I think it's like, five minutes a day of just those things you do that just nurture your relationship. And a lot of that's just around sitting with someone, connecting with them, mm. being present, mm. really listening. Mm. Mm. And I think it's really hard for parents. It's, it's a hard job because there is no rule book. And I often say that to parents, you know, there's no rule book and there's no right or wrong because everyone's different and everything's different and days can be so different and the way you get up and the way you feel and the way you but also too I think as a parent it's drummed into us that we have to well well as a parent when kids are younger we do we fix everything for them well pretty much not everything but you know if they cry we change their nappy and they usually you know stop crying or we feed them or we they fall over we give them a lollipop and we give them a cuddle you know those I think the real challenge is when you know, the life cycle starts to change and and the kids start to individuate and they start to, um, things just can't be fixed with a lollipop 
or <laughs> or a Superman Band-Aid or, a <laughs> you know, or an ice block or whatever. Um, and, and, and parents struggle with that because they have so much love for their kids and they want to fix their pain. Um, so it, it, it's about helping parents learn that too, that shift. Um, but do, do you think some social workers fall into that trap as well, that they get into the role to help people to fix things and yeah. also can be overexcited and overeager and just kind of come in at top rather than meeting the person where they're at? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can put my hand up for that. That, that is just perfect Marie it's exactly what happens because yep we're so passionate and and wanting to help um and and I can really get myself into knots about that and so that's something I'm constantly working on that should be you you can make a t-shirt overexcited social workers anonymous (laughs) yes exactly so you know and particularly if parents aren't stepping up then I'll try even harder you know and so that again is and that's just enabling you know, parents to stay in their space and so, and the cycle to continue and the, you know, the interactional patterns and all of those things to stay as they are. So it's just full on learning, isn't it? All the time and uh, checking in. How do you encourage parents to find that, to be a little bit direct to say, I know you're doing the best you can. There are some things you can do that'll make this easier. So how can you push them to kind of push themselves out of their comfort zone and maybe do some things like attend a talk on raising boys or raising girls, or if they're Mm. young persons um, queer or gender diverse, they can, you know, explore a little bit more about what that's like. So how do you navigate some of those conversations with parents saying that there is ways to do this better. And if you learnt a little bit more, you might find some extra tools for your tool belt. Mm. Um, Well, you can't do that unless you have a relationship with them and that they trust you. So that sort of stuff doesn't come straight away. You know, they are sensitive topics, you know, and challenging discussions to have. And I would think that any young beginning social worker needs help with that and to know when the right time is to do that. It's not hard, but if you don't have a relationship and those people don't trust you enough to listen and give you the opportunity to work with them and support them with that, then you're not going to get anywhere. One, so, thing, one thing I hear from my, some of my students is like, but the solution's so obvious. Why can't they just do it? Yeah. And yeah. it might be really obvious that A, B and C just needs to happen. How do you you know, what advice do you have for those practitioners who are just starting out who are like, well, it's just so obvious if the parents just did this, the problem would go away. Yeah. So I think what they need to do probably is is actually take a very big deep breath when they have that thought um, and a step back and go, okay, why am I thinking that way? And is that helpful? Is that helpful to the outcome for this family or for the person that they're working with? Uh, because if they're thinking that way, that, then that's not helpful. So it's a bit of that CBT stuff. Is this thought helpful or unhelpful, you know? And if it's 
unhelpful, then it's about addressing that first before they go back in to be with the family and talk any further. So it would be touching base with a supervisor or a mentor or someone or just investigating themselves why they're thinking that way. And if they do approach it that way, what the outcome is likely to be. You know, I think that's what they need to do. Go, okay, so if I do do A, B and C, D's going to be a disaster. So how can I do it differently? And it's, I think the first thing they have to do is take any sort of personal or uh, personal or self, you know, self-focused sort of wants out of it. It's got to be about what's best for the family. So if any of that's coming up, then I think that is the first sign that you have to take a step back mm. and just reevaluate before you go any further. Because it's not about it's not about you, and it's not about going at the pace that you want it. Do you find that also can be common on the other end where people are maybe kind of flirting with that line of burnout where they can almost set people up to fail. So they might write case notes where instead of saying phone call to so-and-so unanswered, they might write um, parents not engaging, you know, the length, like they're starting to get resentful that their efforts aren't being acknowledged. So the way they talk about families or students or clients in, you know, in other settings, if that's starting to creep in, that could also be a bit of a sign of burnout or compassion fatigue. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny um, that you say that because I, I, um, I've just got a situation at the minute that I'm working with someone and they are feeling that, you know, they feel, and they're taking it very personally. Well, what have I done wrong? You know, I do everything I can. I've tried so hard. I've done so much. I've, and I think any of that language is a real trigger, isn't it? It's a real sign, a real alert, not a trigger, an alert, you know, that, something's not okay in the way that you're dealing with this and processing this. Um, so I think that's when you need to yeah, definitely look at getting some help with that. Because the people on the other side, they don't care. Mm-hmm. They don't care. You know, if you're seeing, I think of maybe something that makes me uncomfortable, like going to the dentist. I don't care if my dentist is so sick of doing fillings because they've done them for 40 years and I'm the 10th patient that week who's had a filling and they've yes. just had a fight with their partner about childcare and they're giving me, you know, the grumps. I don't care. I'm having a bad experience in my 50 minutes of seeing the dentist. Like I don't think, Oh, the poor thing they've worked so hard to get there and they've done this and they've done everything right. It's like in today, in this moment, you're not providing me with a good service and I'm feeling really uncomfortable and unsafe. Mm. Mm. Yep, absolutely. So I think um, that's really important for people to, to acknowledge in this practice when they're practicing. But I think Marie, that then comes back to the wider, that then opens up another angle where really people need to be ensuring that they are getting supervision to help identify those things and to help do something about it. Because if they're not, then that, you know, their, their trajectory to move to um, burnout is going to be so much quicker and and you know maybe much more damaging um so i think it's really important that the self-care around supervision and um reflective practice and peer supervision those sorts of things is vital Mm, our last couple of guests have talked about supervision and preventing burnout and self-care as 
part of their professional development that you can't split the two, that Mm. you can't provide the work that you provide if you're feeling all this internal struggle or turmoil or you're languishing because one of your biggest tools is the use of you and Mm. your ability to attune as a therapist and to, Mm. or as a clinician or case manager, it's all the same. It's very person-based work Mm. that if you're foggy, if you're distracted, if you're not picking up those subtle cues in someone's voice or a change in their behavior or their micro expressions, you're not doing your job as effectively. So in order to do that, you need to have boundaries and you need to have self-care because you can't separate the clinician or the person from your private life. Mm. Mm. I think that can be a real struggle though, because it's sort of almost contradictory because we get into this because we want to help people. We want to, you know, be able to provide more for people. So it's been like, but I shouldn't be putting myself first. You know, I'm supposed to be doing whatever I can to, to help these people. So then we're like, well, hang on a bit, but now you're saying, no, 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 you need to actually look after yourself too. So I think sometimes I struggle with that because I will sacrifice me for others. But if you use the example of like servicing your car, you might miss mm-hmm. one service and it might still run. But over time, you know, day to day or however often you need to put fuel in the car, but yeah. then over the long haul, like if you skip one or two services, all of a sudden when you least inspect it, your brakes might go or yes. your engine might go and then you find yourself more useless in that moment because you mm. can't you can't then do anything else. And for some people, you know, that little bit, um, you know, that, I don't know the, the breaks going could just be a few days off work for someone else. Mm. That could be, I can't do this job anymore. I can't mm. even fix this car. I need to completely move. So then you can't do the work you want to do mm. with mm. the longevity that you want. If mm. you're not looking analogies. after yourself. Yeah. And I think using analogies like that are great because it really helps you to, um, to sort of just make sense of it. When well, it's an investment in your, mm. in your practice. Mm. You know, and I think another really good one is, you know, we were talking before about wanting to do things that, and, and I guess it's sort of tied in with this, but wanting to do things at uh, the pace that you want to go as opposed to the client. And it's a bit like, um, you know, a train that has to go through a tunnel. Um, it has to go through the whole tunnel. It can't just, you know, start and then you go, oh, my God, I don't want to go through this tunnel anymore. We still have to get through it. So we get through it together and, you know, support, support to get through it and we'll come out the other side. But if we expect that it's just, you know, I can just stop and get off there and not go through the rest of the tunnel or get through it quicker, that's not going to happen because the train only goes at a certain pace. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. So just to wrap up in our last minute or so, do you want to give people maybe some tips on how you manage your wellbeing and self-care? And then, you know, if you want to, um, if people want to kind of get in contact with you, maybe how they do that. Mm. Um, so I manage it by walking. I do walk every day. Um, I do external supervision. And I, if I remember correctly, your walks are at some ungodly hour as well, aren't they? Yeah, 5.30 in good. the morning. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, but I, it's good with the coronavirus because then I can just, I can go out and I don't have to worry about self social distancing. Um, so I walk, yep. And while I'm walking, I often listen to podcasts. Sometimes those podcasts will be just 
conversations. Other times they'll be uh, skill development, um, you know, and and self-care stuff around, um, you know, like uh, Renee Brown or Tara Brash or, um, you know, things like that. Um, otherwise, they're things like the Skillful Podcast or Inside Social Work, Social Worker Podcast. <laughs> um, you know, so it just depends. But I find that's a great time just to to, to self-care. Um, I also use the moon because um, the moon's often up um, at that time of the morning and then it's up again at night. And I use the moon for self-care. It's sort of my higher power and it gives me lots of energy. Uh, so that's, that's another really good thing. I think if people can have something that they can have as, as their, um, their go-to sort of backup, that's give them some energy, that's really good too. Um, so external supervision, I also do group supervision with my team with an external um, psychiatrist. Um, and um, I have, you know, with uni, I've got colleagues that I talk to about things as well and, and the supervisor there. And I also am, so, you know, my friends, my friends are really important. So I, I catch up with them and I spend time with my kids. We have a laugh and a joke all the time together. They're both home with me. So that's a really good self-care most of the time, except when I'm doing their washing and things like that, that I probably shouldn't do anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's probably what I do the most. And some meditation, I do some mindfulness. Headspace is a really good app. Um, I really enjoy that as, a, as an app. You do have to purchase it at some point if you want to get past the initial phase, but I really like that. Um, it's a, an English-based um, app, but it's, it's really good, so I use that. Yeah, so they're the things that I do. Great. Thanks. And if people want to connect with you, um, is maybe LinkedIn probably the best or what would yeah, be? Yeah, that's probably a good idea, Marie. Yeah, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn um, so they can connect with me there. That's probably um, the best way. Mm. Great. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.